Exodus, Exodus chapter 32, if you're using that blue Bible, it's page 72. Exodus 32. Here are God's people, they've been rescued from Egypt, where they were enslaved for generations. They've come to Mount Sinai and they've heard gospel. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I am the God who set you free. Here's how free people live. And so while Moses is now up in the mountain receiving in written form those Ten Commandments and as well as other things, he's up there for quite some time and the people very quickly slide back to familiarity. But I want you to notice as you look at Exodus 32, verses 1-6, through six, how they meld together truths about Yahweh with what they grew up with. Exodus chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. And so all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They're quoting and misquoting the beginning of, of the Ten Commandments. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. Here's the golden calf. We're going to have a feast here at the golden calf to Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And so let's turn now to Colossians chapter 2. We pick up where we're where we are, where we left off last week in our series through Colossians, getting on with the gospel. So we're just picking up right at verse 16, Colossians 2, beginning at verse 16, which is page 984. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up with re without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So what I read to you from Exodus 32, what I read to you from Colossians, it is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you have promised us the spirit of truth who will lead us into all truth. May he be our guide and teacher this day. Amen. You may be seated. If you don't have a Bible or Bible app open to this passage, let me encourage you to do so, because I'm not sure you'll understand what I'm talking about unless you do. So there's sermon notes on the back of your worship guide there with lots of space to write notes. You know, growing up here in Oklahoma, the state fair was a big thing, right? 
and I don't know if they still do this, but the state fair would give the schools tickets so that all of us kids could go there for free. And so I remember many times going to the Oklahoma State Fair. I don't know if any of this happens because I don't go to the state fair anymore. It just doesn't, I don't know. It's whatever, right? And so, but I remember in the 70s as a teenager going to the state fair, and after all the cool rides, you go down this one set of lanes where they have all these booths. And you can shoot guns and, and kill all the, you know, shoot all the little targets and all that. And if you do a really, really good job, you can win this or you can win that. Little did you know that the barrel's bent a little bit, so it's hard to shoot, right? Things like that. And if you remember walking down the state fair, as you're walking down, this is my memory of the state fair in the 70s. You walk down and every one of those booths, those guys, they want you to come to their booth. I mean, you had to go buy tickets or something like milk tickets or whatever it was. But anyways, you had to buy tickets to give them the tickets so you could play at the booth. Well, they got that money in the end. At the end of the day, they'd cash it in and have all that money. So they want your money. And so they would use all kinds of things. Like I was a young guy. And, you know, you go buy the one with the bell and you have to hammer it and the bell rings appear, you know. And sure enough, there'd be some very fine looking young woman saying, are you man enough to do this? Surely you're man enough to do this. Honey. Right? Of, so yeah, so just trying to hook you in, right? And, and the, you know, surely you want to get this for your girl. You can get that big bear if you knock this bell 15 times with pellet rifles, whatever. But they're all trying to hook you in with salesmanship, trying to get you to hear them through the crowd in the marketplace, and they're using whatever ploy they can use to grab you and pull you in. So that's my image of the State Fair, my memory. Hold that image in your mind as we move through this passage. So remember, as I've said before already, that chapter 2, verse 1 of Colossians, chapter 2, 1 through chapter 3, 4, is the antidote to the infectious troublemakers and to the infectious elemental spirits of the world. And it's the gospel gift. And not only is the, is the antidote the gospel gift, but starting here in verse 16, it's also how the gospel gift brings us gospel liberty. The gospel gift brings us gospel liberty. So for these next three Sundays, starting today, and as we work through the end of chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3, for these three Sundays, today and the next two, we're going to be addressing this gospel liberty. Today is part one. And we begin then with failed assessments failed assessments, verse 16 and 18. Verse 16 and 18. Here, my friends, we move now into the chaotic ramble of the marketplace of ideas with all the, of the dealers and traders hawking their wares, trying to get you to invest in their alternatives and their accoutrements, just like walking down the state fair, that lane in the state fair. So Paul begins, therefore... And that therefore tells you that this is attached to what we've just read through and everything. And so he's alerting us that these people he's writing about in verse 16 through 19 and beyond are those who, chapter 2, verse 4, are trying to delude you with plausible arguments. Those, verse 8, who are trying to take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And so they have an assessment of you, those hawkers and traders. They have an assessment of you, and they have an assessment of your Jesus. And Paul is saying that their assessments of you are failed assessments. 
That's how he puts it, verse 16, verse 18, in these words. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of, and so forth. And then verse 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on, and so forth. These vendors are taking the age-old approach of creating a need, intensifying your comfort. Now they've got you to realize that you have this need that you didn't know you had, but they made sure that now you know you have this need. And then they intensify your discomfort because you have this problem you didn't know you had until they told you you had it. And then they show you how their product is the product to scratch your itch. Think of many of our advertisements and commercials. By the way, parents, that's the first question in the kids' section is for them to sit down with you and you to watch a few commercials and, and diagnose those commercials and follow the pattern so you can see some of this. It will help. One time my oldest daughter and I were driving. We were in Jackson, Mississippi, and there was a Virginia Slims billboard over there. The best-looking woman you ever saw was on that billboard. And the reason she was the best-looking, because she smoked Virginia Slims. Right? That's the impression. And I asked my daughter. She was like nine. I said, honey, I said, what are they trying to sell? Well, they're trying to sell cigarettes. How are they trying to sell those cigarettes? <gasps> Dad, they're trying to say if I smoke Virginia Slims, I'll be gorgeous like her. Bingo. When you do that kind of stuff, you, it takes the teeth out of advertisements. So I hope you do this and have fun with this with your kids. But think of many of our advertisements and commercials. For example, and I'm being a little funny here. You're driving along fine, enjoying your Toyota Corolla or like the Levees, your Mini Cooper or your classic Carmen Ghia. Where's Larry? Yeah, Carmen Ghia, right? And then comes on this big this commercial that shows you how much you've got to have that big, ginormous truck because if you drive that truck, you can save the world. You can even turn on lights at people's houses and it will confirm you as a great American. So they nurture in the commercial. They nurture your longing to be known as a good American who can save the world and light up people's houses in a blackout. And then, wham, you find out that their truck scratches your itch that you didn't know you had until the commercial came on, right? They have an assessment of you, and that's, how the, that's just the ploy they use. I'm not speaking anything bad about it. It's just the way that it's done. So the assessment is telling you you have not reached your full potential until you purchase their product. And the same ploy is used for back scratchers. It's used for hair removers and also hair restoration or something like that. Body odor powders and whatever else. It's the same ploy. It's the same ploy also here in Colossians 2 in the marketplace of ideas. And Paul is emphasizing that these believers and you already have all that you could ever need or ever even, even beyond what you know you need. And so these pitchmen's assessment of you is a failed assessment. They've been saying, let no one pass, he says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of, let no one disqualify you insisting upon... So the reason why Paul is able to expose this fault, these failed assessments is because you've already been qualified. It's interesting, he uses that word, don't let them disqualify you. And the reason why he says that, because back in chapter 1, verse 12, what does it say? It says, the Father qualified you. And you remember my analogy of America's Got Talent and Britain's Got Talent and the golden buzzer? God has 
hit the golden buzzer. You're qualified. Who qualified you? He did. So that means that these hawkers and vendors, their assessment of you is a failed assessment. Don't let them disqualify you. You're qualified by the grace of God, by God's own goodness. In fact, he goes on to say in verse chapter 1, verse 23, you're already on firm ground. You're already on sure footing with Jesus as he is freely offered in the gospel. Of course, Paul puts it, if, you indeed, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. He says back in chapter 1, verse 27, that you have Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says in chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge you already have. As I pointed out last week in last week's sermon, as we looked at verse 9 through 15, this Jesus as he is freely offered in the gospel, is your rescuer, is your reclaimer, is your restorer. This is why Paul says back in verse 6 and 7, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. All of that is Paul's way. He's been saying it all along. And so now he tells you that there in that marketplace of ideas where the elemental spirits of the world are pressing in on you to push you into conformity and compliance, that their assessments of you and of your Jesus is a failed assessment. You have everything you could ever want and even beyond in this Jesus who is freely offered to you in the gospel. So it's failed assessment. But the ground of their failed assessments is folk religion. And again, that's verse 16 and 18, is folk religion. Here Paul moves into some of the details of these vendors and their failed assessments. He'll have some more to say when you get down to verse, um, verse 21, 22, and 23, but we'll look at those next week. But it's folk religion. They include things like questions of food and drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, but also, verse 18, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and so forth. Now, you read commentaries, or if you watch that video I sent out on Facebook, on our group on Facebook, on summary of Colossians, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, there's multiple groups that are involved here. It's possible, but it looks to me very clearly like it's actually just one group. It's one group who has taken a smorgasbord approach. They've melded together a little bit of Judaism. They brought in some alternative medicine. You need to be ascetics and so forth. They put in a little local spirituality, worship of angels and so on, and then they've sprinkled in a little seasoning powder of Plato, for good measure. The smorgasbord approach is folk religion. What Paul will later call down in verse 22 and 23, self-made religion packed with human precepts and teaching. Now what in the world is folk religion? Well, folk religion is a populist, intuitive, crowd-sourced, default perspective of spirituality. Just like we saw in Exodus 32. Just like we saw in Exodus 32 
and the golden calf. It dabbles a little bit in official dogma, some biblical dogma, but then it moves over into nativistic and primal aspects. Here was the people of Israel. They had met Yahweh. He had rescued them like no one could rescue them. And Moses, they heard the Ten Commandments. Don't make any other gods. Don't have any other gods. And what do they do within 40 days? They pull together things about Yahweh and they attach it to this golden bull they've made. That's folk religion. Folk religion. When we were, some years back, we were down in Anadarko and I was talking to one of the women at the church there who was uh, a Wichita. And it was a great conversation, but I picked up very quickly how as she's talking about Jesus as he's really offered in the gospel, she was also beginning to slide in some uh, Native American spirituality about spirits and forces and so forth. It was very intriguing. And I'm going to cross that all the time. You can, in Christianity, you find folk religion everywhere. It shows up in Eastern Orthodoxy. It shows up in Roman Catholicism. It shows up in classic Protestantism. It shows up in Evangelicalism. It shows up in Independency and whatever else. It often relies upon trinkets and relics, pictures and rugs, prejudices and sorceries. It's very much about techniques to gain control of the forces of heaven and earth to make them, or to trick them, whatever the case is, to work in one's favor. It can be obsessed with questions of food and drink, with regard to festival or holy days. It can insist on things like asceticism, worship of angels, visions, puffed up without reason by sensuous minds. You possibly remember, and I'm dating myself, those days when we used to get mass mailings and it wasn't political. Okay, that was a that was a different era, you know what I'm saying? You used to get these mass mailings, and I loved to go into the mailbox. I still love to go, and there's usually nothing in there, but used to love to go because there's always something in there, and you may remember this mass mailing sent by a group. And when you open it up, there's this whole wad of paper, and they're all nicely folded, and you pull it out, and it reminds you of how you need God's blessing, and you're too poor, and you're too sick, and you really need God to save you and help you and bless you. And so right in the middle would be this giant paper picture of Jesus. And it would say something like this, prayer rug. And when you read the directions, it says, get on this prayer rug, kneel down for 10 days and pray to Jesus. And I assume that meant the picture of Jesus. And he will bless you, he will heal you, he will restore you. And to make sure it happens, take this, all of this material and send it to the next person so that they can be blessed too. Folk religion. You see it very easily and humorously on social media when they send out memes that say, pass on this picture of Jesus to 10 other people and you'll be blessed 157 times, right? It's funny, but it's folk religion. It's folk religion. That's a pretty obvious set of examples, but, and we can dig down deeper and look at more serious examples, but we would finally get lost in the weeds. But my friends, the Christianized versions of folk religion are most often positing to us that our Lord Jesus, as he is freely offered in the gospel, just isn't enough. 
What you really need is Jesus plus that anointing oil that is made from olives from the Holy Land. What you really need is Jesus and a vegetarian diet. What you need really is Jesus plus an eco-friendly car. But whatever else you want to put in there. Folk religion. And once that happens, then you find out that that is actually a different Jesus that is being peddled to you. It is a pygmy Jesus who is just way too small. It is a plastic Jesus that just can't do you no good. And that's why Paul says these peddlers are not holding, verse 19, are not holding to the head. They're not holding to Jesus as Paul has presented him in chapter 1, verses 13 through 22, and in chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. They're not holding to Jesus as he is freely offered in the gospel. And so, the infectious disease coming from the elemental spirits of the world, the domain of darkness, that is working hard to recapture you and me, has false assessments that is based upon folk religion, and these folks are far from the truth. And here's our third point, far from the truth, and that's verse 17 and 19. Where these vendors and their folk religion are assessing us, let's say from the more Jewish-leaning aspects, they're back up in verse 16. Notice that Paul pushes back on them, and he says, clearly, these are a shadow of the things to come, not the substance, because the substance belongs to Christ. The food, the drink, the festivals, the new moon celebrations, the Sabbaths are a shadow, but the substance is Messiah. The substance is Israel's Messiah. Now, before we get all hyped up and misused terribly, like has been done too often, this passage, to decry seasons and festivals and holy days, we need to think through just a bit. Because the very apostle who wrote those words, Paul, clearly had no problem with any of those things, per se. Paul kept the food laws when he was with Jews. And he didn't keep them when he was with Gentiles. We read that before the confession of sin in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He also continued to use the Hebrew religious calendar to tell time, and he even observed it in Acts chapter 20, verse 16, and 1 Corinthians 16, 8. He's following Pentecost, and he's telling time by the season of Pentecost, and so forth. He even in Acts 18, verse 18, makes a vow and cuts off all of his hair. That's a very Jewish act in the Old Testament. In Acts chapter 21, verse 26, and I could just pile on more of these. So it doesn't seem to really have a problem with the days and the festivals. What's happening here is that he's doing those things. When he observes those things, it has nothing to do with his relationship and it has nothing to do with his rightness with God. They're more rather cultural choices. They're rather more cultural choices. It had nothing to do with his rightness with God. And so I think that if if there's any Messianic Jewish groups that actually might sneak in and listen here, many of my friends in Jewish Messianic Christian groups oftentimes go over the edge, not all of them, but go over the edge and promote themselves as, well, we blow the shofar, we're better than you Gentiles, you goyim. We wear the yarmulkes, we are more Jewish than even the Jews are, we're better than you goyim. And that happens, and that's sliding in the wrong direction. 
But think of it this way. It would be very similar to an Arabic Christian growing up in Iraq or Iran who would continue to tell the time by using an Islamic calendar like all of their neighborhood would do. But they don't look at those days as any more special than the other days. They don't look at any of those days as making them right with God in any other way. They still follow that. And so Christians have, and I've seen them do it, will follow Ramadan, but they'll honor their neighbors and so forth, and everybody's fasting, and by the time the day's over with, they're all grumpy, and so the Christians then will open up their home and say, come to our home and break fast. And then while they're there, they would say, we found what we were looking for in Ramadan. Can we tell you about it? They still follow the days and use the seasons, but don't rely upon them like their Islamic friends. Let me say two further things on this subject. The pressure here and what Paul has put out about the vendors and what they're using, the pressure here has to do with things that are intended to manhandle God. To manhandle God, to make oneself more acceptable to God. Even to wrestle one's lusts and libidos into submission to feel better about oneself. But the reality is, and it was then, that all of these self-generated projects of folk religion were just simply more of the same social pressures and cultural burdens that will capture us and bring us back into compliance and conformity to the domain of darkness, to the elemental spirits of the world. My friends, we must always, Paul is driving home here, we must always hold tight to the gospel gift which gives gospel liberty. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. What do you want? Do you want the shadow or do you want the substance? Well, further, as Paul says here, they're far from, these people are far from the truth with all of their asceticism, worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by sensuous minds. They're far from the truth because they're not holding fast to the head, to Christ as He is freely offered in the Gospel. From whom? The whole body. Nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows up, grows with a growth that is from God. They're far from the truth. But notice that Paul, as he's telling them they're far from the truth, comes back around to the images of our union with Christ. We talked about this last week in verses 9 through 15. Our union with Christ, being united to Christ, being grafted into Christ. In fact, one of you nurses were talking to me the other day about that grafting language and how really meaningful that was to you because it reminded you of things like skin grafts and bone grafts and how that's the image grafted in and now drawing all of life from the host, from Christ himself. That's what we already have. And so because of that, we're growing with that body, with Christ being united and drawing from its life and cells, as it were, all of our life. The elemental spirits of the world, with all of their social pressures and cultural demands for compliance, if we turn to them, then we find that we're actually being turned away from Jesus as He has offered to us in the Gospel because we're out there looking for other ways, 
to be right with God, other ways to make our own salvation, other ways to craft our own well-being. And the elemental spirits of the world are far from the truth. Because the truth is, you are already attached to Jesus. You are already growing up in Jesus. You are already, by grace alone and Christ alone, are growing toward real, unending, forever maturity and holiness. And we preach, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's where we're headed because of Jesus, because of being united with Jesus. So my friends, let's tidy this up and bring it to an end. When you ponder the two questions I've been asking you to ask yourself for the last two weeks, here it is again for the third week. Which Jesus is being presented or peddled to you? And which Jesus is most tempting to you? Which Jesus is being presented or peddled to you? And which Jesus is most tempting to you? You need to recognize that gospel liberty is the legitimate outcome, the legitimate outcome of submitting to and relying upon Jesus as he is offered in the gospel, the Jesus of verse 9 through 15. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled, filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. These he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed, disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's the Jesus you want. So which Jesus is being peddled or presented to you and which Jesus is most tempting to you? And it's only in this Jesus there is real gospel liberty. All the other versions... They may initially sound like liberty, offering you all kinds of trinkets and toys. You will find them more and more constraining and incarcerating in the end. You will have never, you will never know if you've done enough with them. And you will be ending up on that exhausting treadmill, constantly reaching for the next promising thing to get you higher, to get you closer, to get you better. It's like cats and lasers. Caleb one day had his little laser and was, and was going around the house with it and Sydney was bonkers chasing a stupid laser. But there's nothing there, right? It's just light. But there's no substance there and she's going crazy until she finally is exhausted. That's what it's like chasing plastic Jesuses and pygmy Jesuses and all these alternatives like cats chasing lasers. I thought it was a great analogy. 
Further, my friends, by grace alone, you have the substance and not the shadow. Because you have Jesus. Because he is offered in the gospel. And you, by grace alone, are grafted into him, growing in him, filled in him. You have been set free from the dominating, distorting versions of success and power and the good life, which are all just sycophants and yes-men to the elemental spirits of the world, the domain of darkness. Gospel, the gospel gift brings gospel liberty. I ask you, my friends, gospel liberty does not make us lawless and anarchist, anar anarchistic. Instead, you find that your trust is truly in Jesus who is working on you. Your trust is truly in Jesus who is working in you. To do what? Chapter 1, verse 22. To present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. And so instead of constantly surviving in anxiety mode, you are then free because you have the gospel gift. Jesus as he is offered in the gospel. You're free. You're free to actually begin to risk loving and caring about others. As Paul will go on to say in chapter 3, you're freed to finally forgive others. You're freed up to be honest with God and yourself and others. Because in Christ, as you have received him, as he is freely offered in the gospel, there is a, not a zero-sum game. What's a zero-sum game? More for me means less for you, or vice versa. But in Christ, it's not a zero-sum game. There's more grace than there are people. Did you hear that? There's more grace than there are people. And so that means then you can happily give a hand even to one another. So the gospel gift brings gospel liberty. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in your faith just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for your gift, Jesus, as he is freely offered in the gospel. Jesus, who gave himself for us, nailing our debts to the tree, removing our trespasses, and setting us free. Thank you, Lord, that you have set us free. You have delivered us from the domain of darkness. You have transferred us into the kingdom of your, of your beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Forgive us, Lord, when we take detours to these vendors and hawkers, peddlers. Forgive us for our, at times, dissatisfactions with Jesus. Because there's just no other way, place to go. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us, one and all, that we would hold tightly to the substance who is Christ, to the head in which we are growing and growing up ever and always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.